Walking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness with your host, India Lorick Wilmot. Who lived in Brooklyn? Season five. Season five. Welcome to another episode for season five. I'm pleased to have with us award-winning journalist, author, producer, and thought leader, Rob Marriott. A pioneering voice in hip-hop journalism, Rob has covered the music, culture, and politics of the global African diaspora for the last 30 years in journals and platforms such as The Source, where he served as senior editor, Complex.com, Slam, Rollingstone.com, Arise, Essence, Spin, Vibe as editor. He is also a founder of XXL, the premier hip-hop brand. He is also a voting member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rob's work as a music journalist is included in the Best of Hip Hop Journalism collection, among other books and texts. He's also the author of Pimpnosis, Vibes, Tupac Shakur, as well as producer of best-selling documentaries, Thug Immortal, and Gangstresses, Masters of Ceremony which provides a diasporic view of the origins of hip-hop. Rob also leverages his journalistic expertise when it comes to his global humanitarian work. Previously, he worked as creative director for the UN World Foods Program's annual report in Rome, Italy throughout the early 2000s. In 2006, Rob was part of a special group in coordination with the UN, Kofi Annan, and the nonprofit Water for Life, which brought Jay-Z and Beyonce to South Africa, Ghana, and Nigeria. More recently, he serves as editor-at-large for OK Africa, as they cover critical diasporic events, such as the deadly conflict in Ethiopia in a special series in 2022 and 23. Rob's life as a creative extends beyond journalism to music and other platforms. As DJ Tafari, he's played venues throughout the globe in Accra, London, Ibiza, Cape Town, and New York. In October of 22, he executive produced his first exhibition for the Seven House Gallery entitled Above Below, a collection of collaborative painted portraits. Rob is currently co-creator of Most Young Kings, a dramatic series for Amazon Prime. Without further ado, welcome, Rob. Thank you. Very happy and honored to be here. Oh, we very much appreciate you being here, and we have a lot of ground to cover. So are you ready? Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. All right. Just like me, born and raised in Brooklyn, you two Jamaican parents, you also grew up during a time where you witnessed the evolution of hip hop and understood its legacy of inception, development and expansion from a once considered oppositional cultural fad framed in the Northeast, like in places like in New York City, to a hugely artistic global phenomenon that is now considered mainstream and pop. How has life been a child of Caribbean immigrants, inspired you to focus your professional and personal endeavors as a journalist, author, producer, and thought leader? Growing up Caribbean, you know, Jamaican, and is being at crossroads of a very important kind of axis. The Caribbean life and lifestyle is like right in between the West and the East. Africa had 
such a major role in my growing up. If it wasn't my father's record collection or books he read, it was in the rhythms in our language, the colors that we were attracted to. And I always saw Africa as a, a promised land from very young. So it was always kind of like coloring how I looked at the world and my world and perspective. And it was in combination with that very powerful influence of England and the West and really having to be very serious at school because, you know, there wasn't any option. Like you had to really focus on education. That combination ultimately turned into my career where I went to some of the best schools in the country because of my educational excellence as a young person in combination with the things that I saw growing up and the influence of Black diaspora culture that kind of turned into what I wrote about and what I focused on. I will say this too, as a child of Caribbean immigrants, for a lot of immigrant populations in new places, it's all about economic advancement for the most part. And then what comes along with that, you know, human capital, social capital. But all the things that you talked about in terms of your influences still goes beyond the purview of the traditional track that a lot of immigrant parents would want for their children. Just speaking for myself, there were like three professions, right? You had to be lawyer, doctor, engineer, maybe an educator as a fourth option. But none of that is what you were, right? So that doesn't mean that people can't pursue other interests, but you were able to carve out a whole other path that even though you may have taken the same values that were instilled in you around pride around education and communicating the importance or amplifying the connectivity to the diaspora, you've taken a very creative route. So I wonder how that was well received in your household <laughs> in spite of the success that you've achieved to date. It was very difficult for my mother in particular to handle what I was versus what she hoped I'd become. You know, I was always kind of artistically leaning. She'd wake up at night. I'd be up three in the morning, like actually making my own magazines. Ironically, she ultimately had to accept I was a writer and an artist. I think she definitely wanted something else for me. And the irony of it is that it was her bringing home magazines like Architectural Digest and GQ, like in her office, they printed it. So those were very influential in how I started to create. So she actually was the root of it. <laughs> the other thing she used to do is bring home like illustrated novels, like canon, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne and Little Women and Sherlock Holmes. And they were always one page of illustration, one page of novels simplified for children. And I burned through all of those. I ate that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And all of those novels were really influential as well. It kind of sowed the seed of being visual and being literary. Mm. All my projects kind of still have that. I always have a kind of visual element, even if I'm writing. That's beautiful. I mean, sometimes people don't really think about that because then you have to think creatively about the words. Are the words that you're selecting on page accurately depicting the vision that you have in your mind, right? Yeah. In terms of your imagination. And then to be able to see how these go hand in hand. First of all, I wanted to be a painter. That was like my first love. 
if I wasn't writing about something, I was painting it or vice versa, and it would like kind of cross in my mind. So whatever synapses that I was developing, the visual and the literary were very much connected. I was always into design and fonts. So even when I would write, I would think about the letters visually. And I was really into illustrated Bibles, for example, mm. because the letters were as much a part of the experience and how beautiful the letters were, were as much a part of the reading experience as the actual words. The impetus of your journalistic career, I recall you saying once in another interview, began with an internship at The Village Voice, where you overlapped with and was influenced by many folks, including people like Greg Tate, who I think merged all these different things as you're talking about in terms of your own experience. But for you specifically, when it comes to writing, why hip hop? And to quote one of my favorite contemporary movies, Brown Sugar, where Sanaa Lathan's character, Sydney, says to all of her guests, when did you fall in love with hip hop? Why hip hop? I'm as old as hip hop is. So the movement, the cultural movement, that is, I saw it from the very, very beginning. And I was part of it from the very, very beginning. So it was really like the defining music and culture growing up in Brooklyn, being Caribbean, growing up in the Williamsburg projects. It was all around me. And, you know, it was inevitable that I would have a relationship with it on some level. But I think it also captured my imagination on every level. It's something that you have to be initiated into. The experience of growing up in the 80s, it was really like an initiation. And the way hip hop kind of like formed, it was like it's a Frankenstein monster that was created because New York City is Pan-Africa. It's Pan-World, but it's Pan-Africa. And all of these little pieces of culture kind of formed this Frankenstein monster that connected all of these disparate places. So if you know about capoeira, it's just African-Brazilian martial arts, it's very similar to breakdancing. And if you know about the talking drum from West Africa, these traditions kind of came through the Caribbean and into New York through the Ghanaian diaspora that was in the Bronx and the Puerto Rican, the African-American Southern traditions of dance and breaking down and all of these kind of pieces of culture all kind of fused together in New York. And if you grew up in that, if you had the privilege of growing up during that era, you were initiated into this like amazing thing that would capture your imagination. And I remember when I particularly fell in love with it, Rapper's Delight, we all memorized as children. I think I was in second grade, maybe. That was interesting and playful and it was like this novel thing. But when I started to really like, take hip hop seriously, this kind of paradigm shift for me was Rakim. Mm. And uh, I remember, I think the rhyme was, uh, can you detect what's coming next from the flex of the wrist? I remember being in my grandmother's room and like hearing that and thinking, this is something not just new, but like a real paradigm shift. Uh, my melody haunted me. All of the things that he was talking about and the, the way his voice sounded and the curvature of his rhymes, it was like so mind-blowing to me. It appealed to the writer in me. It appealed to my love of music and novelty. And looking back on it, it was 
the postmodernness of it, you know, all these little bits and pieces of phrases that we heard on television, sounds that you might hear in the street and then fusing it into music that was so beautiful and so resonant to my experience. You know, we were all trying to kind of figure out what this world was from these little cartoon clips, Bugs Bunny and Max Headroom and Rolling Stones or whatever the pastiche was. We had to kind of fuse it together growing up and make something of ourselves from it. That process was like made manifest in the music. You could actually hear producers doing the same thing that you kind of had to do with your own life. So that became very, very central to how I defined myself. Mm. Folks hear the idea of initiation. The mind immediately goes to things like gangs. You seem to be talking about something more spiritual. Please elaborate. The 80s were a really rough decade. The history of civil rights, what happened by the 80s was like kind of this backlash politically. The Reagan era was very similar to Trump in that, you know, it was like, let's make America great again. Get back to like these kind of conservative, ruthless values. The whole idea of welfare queen and these racialized ideas about who was taking away from America, especially in a place like New York City, you know, you as a person of color were probably in the margins. It's funny because like I look back at those times with nostalgia, but it was like a terrible time for the city, right? But for a child, it felt like the whole city was kind of like every door was ajar. No one was watching what was going on. So we were running through basements on rooftops, like kind of like everywhere we're not supposed to be. The city was kind of like a playground, very dangerous playground. I used to play in like junkyards and rolled old tires and everything just felt like you had access to it, but it also initiated you into this kind of like space where pain and discovery were kind of one and the same. All the lessons you learned, it was an all body experience. It wasn't just intellectual, you know. I was getting intellectual knowledge from books, but I was getting real hard body knowledge from experience and from knowing people. Hip hop was an initiation and a ritual that was created in the void of any traditional ritual. The fact that we don't have rights in modern America, like rites of passage, that was created you know, and concocted by children, basically, by the young people, because we didn't have it. Same way that, you know, once they took music classes out of public school, people started to make music with records, DJs and rhyming. All of it was very DIY. The ritual that hip hop was, you know, when you went into a basement party, there were like incantations, like to a tick-tock, you don't stop, to a tick-tick, you don't quit, and yes, yes, y'all, and all of those were incantations. The experience of having to dance with someone as a young man, approach someone and know how to WAP or do all of the things that made you a participant and not just a spectator, those were all initiations. Those lessons really stayed with me to this day because it taught you how to be a creative, how to be someone that's not just standing on the side or on the wall, but actually being 
engaged and having to challenge yourself to figure out how to battle someone on a breakdancing floor or if you're an MC, get on the mic and move the crowd or, you know, as a DJ, all of those skill sets had to be created by you. You know what I mean? And we lauded individual expression and independence and how developed was your style? How much time and energy did you put into your outfit? All of those things became foundational for everything that I would do later. Tell us a little bit about your experience with Greg Tate, because in many ways, he was the generation that was before us looking to the transition around jazz, the earlier influences of hip hop, the same sort of response in many ways that the counter narratives, according to the mainstream, were reflective of what's happening in real communities and in people's lives. And so what was that experience like to be under his and other people's tutelage as you're coming up and going through your own rite of passage with hip hop? I was very, very fortunate to, out of high school, become an intern at The Voice at that critical time because there were so many amazing Black writers. I remember Joe Wood, Nelson George, Joan Morgan, Lisa Kennedy, Lisa Jones, Ben Mapp, this large crew of Black writers. Greg was at the very center of it, and it was actually Greg Tate that made me want to even apply for The Village Voice because in high school I read his essay, Flyboy in the Buttermilk, about Basquiat. That's when I was like, okay, maybe I will focus on writing rather than painting because that essay was so resonant to me as a kid in prep school. I remember finding it. I went to Hotchkiss boarding school in Connecticut, 95% white. And reading Flyboy in the Buttermilk was like, this is who I am. This is my experience. That's how I discovered Basquiat. So Greg Tate was very, very, very critical to me. And then to be able to actually now be in the office with him and then like kick it with him for hours of just philosophizing and talking. He was always generous with his time and we really were able to build on ideas. And he was at the very center of my understanding what writing is and could be his incredible mastery of language was an inspiration. I was basically, for those first few years, a baby Greg Tate or attempting to be that. He was really critical. And so was writers like Joan Morgan. She went to prep school and grew up in the Bronx. So she also had similar experience to me. I remember she had a feminist take on Ice Cube, which hadn't really happened before that in that way and being so incredibly articulate. So being surrounded by, you know, what we called at the time the Niggerati was really, really an incredible experience for me as a young person. I was still only like 19, but I met everyone that was kind of moving and shaking, you know, in the Black literary world at the time. The voice was an amazing, amazing experience. We talk about hip hop and conscious rap and R&B and even the precursors and the influencers like James Brown and his work informing those that sampled his work and that sort of thing. When you think about the context of hip hop, when you think about being in the space and place of the voice and being influenced by so many of your colleagues and those who came before you, and you think about your work now, what is your approach to capturing the varied narratives and stories in your writings? I always try to find the roots of whatever I'm investigating, right? So I chose to be a writer because, you know, you have the freedom to follow your curiosity. On top of that, it's like, I always try to look at what compels me towards something. 
-hmm. and then look at the history of it. So my first instinct is always to kind of go back to what origins there might be. So with hip hop, it's always fascinating because it has so many mothers. <laughs> you can go back through jazz, you know, into the blues. I remember discovering Albert Murray, his book called Stomping the Blues. When he described the blues, it sounded like he was talking about hip hop. And he also had just incredible language around explaining that the blues were not about making sad songs, but actually about getting rid of sad feelings it was a counter to sadness. Most people think, oh, somebody's singing the blues because they're sad. No, they're singing the blues to make themselves happy. Blues imperative is about destroying the blues, the dance that came out of it. Greg Tate made you understand that there was this cultural matrix that created hip hop. I would follow the threads down those rabbit holes in Jamaica and the Caribbean. They contributed so much to the formation of hip hop. That was always something I investigated and Bob Marley is still a hero of mine. Lee Scratch Perry and his experimentations with sound and, mm. and Doug, these were places where things that compelled me about Biggie or Tupac or Rakim, you could find those roots in the 60s and 50s and so on. So. Anything that I'm creating now or thinking about, I still am looking at those antecedents. Of course, it'll lead you back to Africa. Be what you want to see. Act two, the road. So I always ask my guests this question, and it's actually pretty fun. How do you play? My play is exploration. I always try to kind of find the edges of things. I'm interested in getting to, I think the phrase is like, know the ledge. So you get up to the periphery, but you never go over? That's the game, right? Are you going to fall or fly? I like taking risks and seeing which way it goes. Tell us about the impetus of DJ Tafari. I was writing about music for many, many years. I had an incredible collection. On CD, I found myself in Zambia in the early 2000s. Basically, after 9-11, New York changed so radically. When 9-11 happened, I was actually in Rome. My girlfriend at the time called me. It was like, the World Trade Center is gone. And I didn't believe her. And then when I finally got back to the apartment in Rome, it was like the world had ended. Mm. Just so happens the next day, this is when I was working with the UN. I was traveling to the Ivory Coast. This is September 12th. We're in the Ivory Coast, Abidjan. And I look at the newspaper. The World Trade Center was like a small picture on the corner of the cover of the newspaper. Some bomb happened very, very far away. And I just thought at the time, like, I want to be on this side of the equation. The world was obviously changing at that point. So I moved to Africa, lived in Zambia. What I found is that when you went to the clubs, they only played 80s music. That saccharine, like, you know, roses are red, that kind of music. <laughs> it was really irritating to me. After a while, I played my own music. That was the birth of my DJ career. And then I started to really intentionally collect music. I was in Southern Africa, so I got a lot of music from South Africa, Zambia, in West Africa, this is the same time that the iPod was born. So you could have thousands of records at the same time. And my experience of being Caribbean, 
growing up in New York, traveling as much as I did gave me a real eclectic collection. I think I was unique in the way I was combining all of the sound. So I got more and more popular and I started playing in different places, places like Ibiza and clubs in New York and so on. It's still something I do not as often as I used to, but it's always part of my kind of creative output. You talked about initiation and the rite of passage. And even for you, when you're going through just your own maturation and developmental processes, your work development as well, and it's taking you to different parts of the world. Hip hop is coming with you and evolving with you and within you, even while it's also evolving herself. Hip hop was like a point of departure because there's a DNA, there's a process. And because hip hop is so much about creating yourself on the microphone or on wax, on the dance floor, or, you know, in performance, that DNA and that process applies to a lot of different things, any kind of creative endeavor, how to express yourself in the most emphatic way. Some of those lessons I got from dancehall, some of those lessons I got from blues, some of those lessons I got from R&B and so on. But hip hop is where all of it kind of can live at the same time being initiated into that and having that real DNA inside of me made me appreciate the whole diaspora in a certain way. I remember when I first landed in Zambia, and this was like first day really living in Africa, I always take a walk around just to get my bearings. And the first thing I saw was a little boy, probably six or seven, and he had Tupac written in chalk in the side of his head. What a crazy moment for me because like I couldn't be further away from the context in which I understand hip hop. And here was this little boy with Tupac written in the side of his head with chalk. I thought this is something very critical that I need to understand as much as I can, you know what I mean? Because it's really changing the world as we see it. You have all these different kinds of influences and different pathways that you've taken, you've meandered, you've done different things, right, professionally. And so what's your purpose and how does it even relate to your work with those particular global entities? And why is all this important to you as part of your own journey? I always define myself kind of and saw myself as a scribe, someone who is documenting this moment in history but I think the overall purpose of even documenting all of this is to increase the value of our lives in the context of what's going on globally and geopolitically. So I think the real challenge going forward is price point. How do we value our culture? How do we value our actual lives? Who's determining those numbers? <laughs> again and again, what I see no matter what part of the world I'm in, you know, the darker your skin, the less valuable your contribution to things are. I don't know how that came about, how we just agreed upon these lowered prices or how someone who you see their talent or you see their contribution after the process is over, they're the ones that get the least amount. I think these last couple of decades, the conversation has been about how do we change that formula? The Bible phrase is that at some point, the last becomes first and the first becomes last. And 
that's what we're in right now is like how to turn that whole thing around. All of my work, whether it's for the UN or for OK Africa or anything that I'm doing, ultimately what I'm trying to do is increase the value of what I see as the most beautiful, charismatic, dynamic people and culture in the world. Global Africa is where everything starts, where everything finishes. It's the well that keeps giving. It's like water on this earth. I can't think of anything that doesn't have some root in that global African cauldron. My purpose is to emphasize and focus on those aspects of culture and highlight those people and be very honest and precise in the portrayal of it. The global market value of Africanness, Blackness, and I'm putting those in air quotes, the commodification of that essence as it's applied to human beings. Who came up with this value system? How did the code on Spotify become more value than the music that animates the machine, the musician that created the music? The machine is useless without it. Somehow gets, you know, 0. 0.0002 cents per stream, but that coder is getting enormous amount of money for their work. Something has to change dramatically for things to be right. And it's funny in that you may devalue the human beings, but the essence of what we produce is something that's immeasurable, even if there isn't any positive valuation that others may place. Like we have value. I mean, of course, but I think that's the rub, right? At the end of the day, the machine has insinuated itself in our world and our life more and more. I mean, I think as Generation X, I'm part of the last generation of analog life. Digital has really like taken more and more real estate in our lives as time has gone on, or, you know, machine culture. I don't know how we're going to address this problem of valuation. You have to destroy the machine in your life, right? Or go off the grid in order to really like live a life that doesn't abide by these unfair rules, or you find a way to renegotiate your relationship with the machine. We're not united in what the best approach is, right? I think even in our own individual lives, you know, you have to figure out how much of that machine life, having kind of security financially and so on, are you willing to sacrifice your real understanding of your own value for your participation in kind of mainstream culture? That's a question that stays unanswered, I think, for most Black people. Right, that tension of, I want to be with the cause, but I got bills to pay. The money is such an allure that it will make you play yourself mm. and do things that are totally outside of your character and your culture and control mechanisms. So no one wants to have to live without things that money can provide, but you need a very large collective of people to say no to it. That's a huge challenge to try to even create. What we're essentially talking about is just how do we fight the false consciousness of capitalism? I mean, that's Marx's theory. So Karl Marx, folks, go out there and read Marx. Your background in terms of being a producer and documentarian, and now most recently you've moved to small screen with your Amazon Prime's Most Young Kings. How are you finding, amplifying these kinds of stories and voices and experiences 
in these mediums? How does it compare to the more mm. traditional journalistic accounts? Well, I think it's a natural evolution. A lot of my peers all kind of transitioned from journalism to television or movies in some way, shape or form. And obviously documentaries are a direct thing. Doug Amorto was actually just a documentary version of an article I wrote for Vibe about Tupac's death and what happened afterwards. Even with the book I wrote about pimps and so on, I was always trying to kind of look into the origins of the culture, where the influences came from and what that world was like. Pimp culture has the outsized influence on hip hop. I wanted to understand what it really was. And I found a photographer that was documenting pimps mm. in a really beautiful way. Tracy Funches did these incredible images. So it was the same thing with gangstresses. What was the woman's side of this hip hop culture? And what were those roots? And what defined a gangstress? What made women who came out of this culture and these environments, what made them tick? Most Young Kings and documentaries I'm doing now, kind of just further extension of those investigations and that exploration of what created the culture and what makes it so charismatic and compelling. So as we all know, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And so as we've talked about throughout our conversation today, over the last five decades, we've observed many shifts in the culture, the music, the artists, its messages, the reification of certain kinds of themes and tropes. Right. Where do you hope the state of hip hop will be in the next five to 10 years or even the next 50? Well, first of all, I'm very proud of being Generation X. Number one, we're like the smallest group, but we had the most massive impact, almost like Jamaica being such a small island, but having these outsized influence on culture. What I would like to happen is the generation that comes with it, reconnect to that DNA again of being original, having a certain code and the things that made hip hop so buoyant and prodigious and compelling. That DNA has everything to do with being tested, like battling and learning how to be yourself under any circumstance. Again, being original, being hardworking and focused. I want a kind of reconnection to that root culture. And I feel like the things that I'm working on now is really an attempt to show that side of things and that hip hop is not just a way to make money, but it's like a spiritual journey. If it's done right, it may not be called hip hop anymore. In 10 years, the thing that we would call hip hop, because I feel like, you know, hip hop is jazz just transformed for modern purposes. Every generation needs something else from the culture and needs something else from the music and they create the music that they need. I'm not going to assume that I know in 10 years what that generation is going to need. I try to just pay attention to what's happening and I listen to Drake and I listen to Uzi and I pay attention to Cardi B and Ice Spice. Listen without judgment or really trying to compare it too much to what I was growing up with because the world is so radically different. What the kids need from music and what psychological technology they have to create to make things right for themselves is going to be very different. But I hope that the roots of it, what Ross is referred to as foundation, People are always in touch with that. 
as an artist and a documentarian, I want to be able to create enough of a information highway to those roots and to that foundation. Is that what you want your legacy to be? Absolutely. All the things that I'm working on now is really me talking to my sons about what I understand as the most valuable things in life, in the culture. With my youngest sons, very much in the creative field. So talking to them about how I came up and what was valuable to me, passing that information and making them understand jazz and who Sun Ra is and mm-hmm. Miles Davis and who Marcus Garvey is and why that's connected to the you know reggae movement and God body and five percenters and all those things that were so influential on me to understand it in the same way I did. Well, the future needs context, right? And not that what they're thinking that they're creating hasn't been informed by what preceded them to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a quality control thing. A lot of things that I think are so disposable now is because they don't have this kind of critical foundation underneath it of information to kind of bolster what is created. So much of it is like push button. And I think that's the biggest difference between the digital world and the analog world is that when you had to get information and walk to the library and go through that entire process, there's something happening to you as a person and it reflected in the quality of the output. There's a reason why Jordans are still the most popular shoes because there was an experience that happened in the 80s where people put their blood, sweat, and tears into this product that now resonates to the point where it's still this important shoe. I don't think it's ever happened. I was on the train and I was like, wow, nine out of 12 people on this train are wearing Jordans. That's a cultural thing. That's a value that's been imprinted on this leather. (laughs) So what is that essence? What is that value? And If you can understand what that essence and value is, you can like apply it to anything. Get involved. Act three, where we land. All right, Rob, we have reached a point in the program where I just ask all my guests, talk about any of your upcoming projects. You have any forthcoming books, documentarian, release dates, art exhibits, anything that you want folks to check out. If you have a website, your social media handle, where can they learn more and continue to follow and contribute to the space and the place and all the things that you are doing? Two things I'm really, really excited about right now. We're about to do an exhibition something I created with two of the teams that I work with for many years. Basically, it'll be an art exhibition that features really specialized clothing and photography, mm. fusing them together, almost kind of like a visual sound clash. Baron Claiborne, who is a photographer I worked with for many, many years, he is the guy that did the biggie with the crown. It's partly a retrospective of his work not just in hip hop, but all his spiritual images. And we're combining with someone named Gay Bouillon, who is a designer who made some of like Missy Elliott's most unique fashions and Little Kim and so on. We're going to kind of fuse the photography and his leather work together in this exhibition that's really 
going back to what we were talking about, showing the essence of what hip hop is, the kind of content that we're going to build around that exhibition will be my kind of final statement on what hip hop is in my mind in terms of the spiritual and metaphysical side of it. In all the conversation about hip hop being 50, that's what's least talked about, the ritual side of things. I'll give an example. I studied Br'er Rabbit stories, tales told by the enslaved, and how the animals became metaphor for psychological technology that allowed for people to become free mm. one way or the other. And one of the stories was about Br'er Rabbit and Brother Wolf and how the rabbit, even though it was a smaller, supposedly weaker animal, would always outsmart the wolf and escape his clutches. When you really look into those tales, you see all of the material that would turn into narratives that would become hip-hop. The pieces that we're working on now is kind of detailing those kind of elements and how Obia and traditions in the Ashanti region, relationship with gold, and all of those things are genetic memory made manifest in modern culture. You know, when I was in Ghana, for example, I met this woman, super charismatic saleswoman. She was a millionaire, but you would never know it from her little shack where she sold sorrel. She sold like sorrel leaves. She brought them down from Burkina Faso into Ghana. When she smiled, I saw she had a gold tooth. What struck me was that, first of all, she looked like my auntie, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's definitely a connection between Jamaica and Ghana. And then, you know, her name was Haji Afati. And the reason why she had to go tooth is because she had taken the Hajj. Mm. So it was a way of someone recognizing that she had done one of the seven principles of Islam. It's a form of respect, the gold tooth. You know, in hip hop, we've maintained that gold tooth respect, but it was cut from the tradition. It's just there, but we don't know where it originated from. I'm always fascinated by that, like how we've maintained these kind of traditions, whether we did it consciously or not. That's the kind of thing that I'm interested in laying out in a very clear way so that it can be passed down. As you were describing the upcoming exhibit with the fusion, it just really reminded me of this spread that came out a couple of years ago with Carrie Mae Weems that she mm. did with Mary J. Blige. Okay. Here you have, you know, Miss Weems, this iconic Black woman photographer, and she's photographed all kinds of things, beautiful stuff. And then Absolutely, you have yeah. the queen of hip hop, you know, and R&B, and just the same sort of crowning and just this interesting thing that happens in that photo spread with the fashion and right. how they're even talking about the relationship between art, Black culture, voice hip-hop. And so here was just this print article, but here you have a live exhibit that's really doing all the things. And then, of course, it's original, so therefore you're expanding it and grappling with other kinds of topics. I love that. We uh, have originally slated it for October, but we may have to push it back because Sotheby's may be interested and might need more time to set up collaboration, but it's going to be massive. And that's kind of how we're going to celebrate the 50th. That's awesome. So can you share with folks what your social media handle is, your website, so people can stay on top and follow along and attend the exhibit? So I'm at Tafari 
on Twitter and Spill, I guess. My website is shangorepublic.com, X-A-N-G-O Republic. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to actually launch a art site on that site where a lot of the global diasporic art I've been engaging with will be on there and there'll be products also going to sell. But most of it is now going to be like the content that I've been building out. The documentary, the memes and clips that we've been kind of putting together will all be there on that site. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Rob Marriott, for joining us here on this podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.